Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I'm thinking about a patient whose story is becoming all too common in our world today. She's a middle-aged woman, relatively healthy overall, not a lot of medical problems. One day she's working around the house or she's working in the garden and she injures her back from overuse. Initially, she manages the pain with over-the-counter pain medications, anti-inflammatories, but the pain doesn't improve, so she goes to her primary care doctor. She's prescribed a regimen of physical therapy, and she's eventually told that she may need back surgery to help fix a bulging disc in her spine. She's also given opioid pain medications to help take the edge off. Fast forward several months down the road, now she's on disability because the pain is so severe that she can't work. She's depressed because she can't do the things she used to do and she's frankly become dependent on opioids to get her through the day. The story is tragic and familiar to millions across the country. Today's conversation is all about the opioid epidemic. We'll discuss the scope and the origins of the opioid crisis, and we'll get at ways to mitigate it at the level of the patient, as well as ways to manage this problem on a more macro level. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. Today, it's all about opioids, chronic pain, and pain management, and our guest for this conversation is Dr. Bruce Hillenberg. Dr. Hillenberg is a chief psychologist in pain management at Beaumont. He's the chief of pain management services for the Beaumont system, which is a group established to tackle opioid and chronic pain management-related issues across Beaumont's entire healthcare system. In our chat today, we'll be focused on a few key areas. We'll frame up the conversation briefly with some historical perspectives on pain management as it relates to the opioid epidemic. In other words, how did we get here? We'll spend a little time talking about how our current healthcare laws may be helping or possibly hurting our progress on this front. And then we'll get into strategies for coping and managing chronic pain, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological in nature. And with that, I will welcome our guest, Dr. Bruce Hillenberg. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. Appreciate having you in the studio. Bruce, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you end up becoming Beaumont's pain management guru? Okay. Well, I've been a psychologist almost uh, 40 years. Um, And in my uh, 20s and 30s, I had a couple of back surgeries because I suffered from uh, back pain in my uh, late teens and into my early 20s. And I got some partial success uh, from those surgeries, but not complete success. I did try um, some opioid medication at that time, uh, codeine, um, but over time began to realize that this was probably something I would be living with, and I had to figure out how to manage it and uh, try to have the best life possible. So I really began to study that, um, you know, read as much as I could about how to cope with pain, uh, you know, through uh, my own effort rather than medical uh, treatment. And uh, in, in my discoveries, I became very interested in how other people did that. I then went back to school, uh, became a, a clinical health psychologist, and right at the time I went to uh, graduate school was really the beginning of pain psychology, psychologists working with uh, medical team members to address pain, and uh, I really developed a, a big interest in the whole pain management area. Well, I know for a fact that you've helped a lot of patients with chronic pain throughout Beaumont system, and, and you've really been instrumental in helping Beaumont sort of uh, figure out its own way around this this opioid epidemic and, and sort of learn how to, to tackle those issues from a system standpoint. So thank you for that. Let's get right into the conversation. Um, we're going to talk about the opioid ep- epidemic. First, a few numbers for perspective. According to the Department of Health and Human Services data, and this is data from 2016, 2.1 million people have an opioid use disorder. 
11.5 million people have misused opioids. That's one year's worth of data in total. About 42,000 people, roughly 116 people per day, die from opioid overdoses. The economic cost of this is estimated to be somewhere around $500 billion. So I guess the question for starters, and it's a big question, is how did we get here? Well, one of the critical issues is that if you want to go back prior to the uh, 1980s, there was a general consensus that we were under-treating pain, both acute pain, mm. uh, pain from injuries, pain after surgery, or chronic pain. And pain, especially chronic pain, has probably been our most prevalent uh, medical problem um, you know, for the last 100 years. It's been a significant issue. Um, with some recognition that we uh, needed to better address uh, pain, Right around in the 1980s, there were some unsupported claims by a group of physicians that opioids were the answer and that they had no uh, safety risk associated with them. Hmm. Um, and that really was the evidence that began to support the increased utilization. Uh, large pharmaceutical companies um, grabbed onto that, marketed to physicians and to uh, pharmacies and health systems. Um, and that began to increase the growth. And right around the same time, uh, um, originally by the American Pain Society and then the Joint Commission, they established that pain should be the fifth vital sign mm. and that it should be measured in all patients and, and treated effectively. This is something I, I have personally remember being an issue. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that was a Joint Commission uh, standard that was, that was brought down, that we were going to now, in addition to everything else, we wanted to control everybody's pain in the best way possible. That was in the 90s, right? That, yes, that was in the 90s. Hmm. And um, so one of the problems is the fact that as we began to use more and more opioids as a predominant approach for the management of acute and chronic pain, um, it became a significant problem. Um, for example, one of the struggles is that hospitals in the 90s and beyond were being measured by how satisfied patients were, how yep. satisfied they were with their pain management. And there's always been a conflict between uh, satisfied patients in pain management and patient safety. So that was a problem. Another problem, too, is that you had this uh, lack of evidence out there to support the effectiveness for the use of opioids, but its growth was going significantly. And part of the problem is that up until a few years ago, uh, most physicians, nurses, physicians' assistants really had a minimal uh, training and education in um, pain management in medical school or in their courses or in residency or fellowship. So you really had a lot of gaps in education. We also did not have enough resources uh, for non-opioid related treatments, uh, maybe not enough evidence, and that was another significant problem. Hmm. We also found, especially in terms of outpatient care, that there was increased volume pressures among our primary care physicians, and they were seeing more and more patients with persisting pain problems. That was probably the most prevalent problem. And because they did not have enough time with their patients to really go through some of the complex issues, making pain a difficult issue to uh, treat, it was much easier to, to write a script when you really were, did not think it was a, a, a risk. Hmm. And we quickly became aware, uh, especially over the last decade, that the risks associated with this were far greater than we ever thought. Absolutely. So I want to key in on something that you said just a moment ago, and that is uh, when we talk about pain as the fifth vital sign, am I right in saying that hospitals, 
physicians, practitioners, they were effectively being marked down um, or dinged in some way, shape, or form if they weren't adequately controlling pain. So in other words, if they were not prescribing enough opioids, then it would hit them in some sort of quality metric. Is that right? Exactly. So one, the, the focus was to, um, the metric was every patient would be asked about to rate their pain on a zero to 10 scale, with 10 being the worst pain possible. And our goal was to, as quickly as possible, uh, dial that down. And when patients left the hospital, we would give them enough medication to assure that that was a problem, especially because oftentimes they don't get those satisfaction surveys for weeks after they've been in the hospital. And that was a a problem. But also, if we gave them too much medication on discharge, um, we have now found that on average, 40 to 60% of those prescribed pills go unused, and um, over 75% of those pills go unprotected. They might just be in an open medicine cabinet in somebody's bathroom. Uh, increasing the risk for diversion into the community. So what was the wake-up call? What, what was the thing that said, okay, we clearly can't continue down this road, and what was the thing that sort of triggered the pendulum to swing in the other direction? Well, it basically was the increasing um, prevalence of overdose, accidental overdose deaths mm. from opioids. And I think that was the wake-up call, and people began to look at um, how are these opioids getting out into the community, um, and we also discovered that some communities in, in the country had a greater prevalence of problem. So I think what it did is people began to, uh, you know, the, it was a shock to our system when we began to realize it is, was not as safe as we thought it was. Hmm. And then a lot of people began looking at what are some of the complex generators of this problem and, and better understanding who is at risk for developing a problem and, and who not. You know, one of the unfortunate things is that um, as we become aware of the risks associated with opioids, those patients who are using opioids appropriately and are not having any complications associated with them um, have become more anxious that they may lose uh, the appropriate treatment that they uh, they deserve, especially if we think in terms of patients with uh, uh, cancer pain or, or terminal illness or other types of conditions. So that was kind of one of the unintended um, consequences of the pendulum uh, going too far to the point of, of now fear in, in the use of opioids. It is fair to say now that the pendulum has fully, fully swung in the other direction. And now we live in a world where, um, I would say rightly so, we're more aware uh, of the consequences of opioids and, and, uh, and the dangers associated with opioids. Um, but we've made it much more onerous uh, on the physician and on the patient to get the the opioids that they may need to manage their chronic pain. And so now we live in this world where, well, there's now there's a lot more legislation out there as well that sort of is looking at this. So we're, you and I are both aware of some Michigan legislation that's changed prescribing practices for opioids um, and other controlled substances. Can you briefly summarize a few of those changes and sort of what's going on in the community right now for physicians who want to prescribe opioids to their patients? Okay. So in... Um in January of 2018, uh, the Michigan legislature um, began its new um, laws governing uh, the use of uh, opioids. And basically, it's focused a lot on, one, um, screening all patients before you prescribe them an opioid on a system it's called the Michigan Automated Prescription System, or MAPS. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we now, all, all prescribers are now required to screen patients to see every uh, medication that has been prescribed to them just to see that if they may be at risk. Is the patient telling you uh, the medications that they tell you that they have before you prescribe them an opioid? Is that accurate? Or have they been uh, get, getting other medications that are not telling you about? So you just want to find out basically how honest is the patient in terms of their medication use history. So MAPS will give me sort of a list of all the pain medication, opioids, controlled substances that a patient has received. Over what period of time are we talking about? Um, it'll basically uh, tell you over the, uh, you know, really the last uh, six months, if not more. Okay, very good. All right, so we have that po- that procedure is in place, and now physicians, the expectation is if you're going to prescribe controlled substances or opioids to a patient for pain, you have to check a MAPS to see what other controlled substances that that patient has been on, right? Exactly. Okay. What other things have we installed in the most recent six months or so? So another um, is the fact that we've um, now use what's called the Start Talking Consent Form. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that when you write a script for a patient... Um, uh, for an opioid medication, um, you need to provide them education about some of the risks associated with opioids, risks such as if they've had a history of mental health or substance use problems, that there is some risk of addiction. Um, We talk with them about um, safe use and safe disposal of that medication. And then we have the patient, or if it's a minor uh, the parent or, or uh, guardian at least sign that form indicating that they've received that education. Um, so that requires us to really educate patients and family members about the, about the risks associated with them. The last is that we now are restricting, through the, the laws restricting, the number of pills that can be prescribed to a patient for acute pain. The law states that you can no longer prescribe more than a seven-day supply um, and that's really important because prior to that, um, the supplies could be uh, up to 30 days worth of medication. And if 40 to 60% of those uh, by research were going unused, uh, for many patients, that's a lot of uh, oversupplied medication out in the community. Um, so that's now a new requirement, too, which, which places a greater demand on, on prescribers because we have to have more resources to follow people up, especially for those that have more complex pain problems and are going to need refills beyond seven days for an acute condition. So with the MAPS, with the Start Talking form, with the limits on the amount of, of opioids that one can be prescribed, is this good enough? Is this the we need screening clearly? I think you and I would both agree with that. Is this the kind of screening that we need? Is this robust enough, or do we need more, or do we need less? What are your thoughts? Well, I think this screening is helpful. I think it's helpful in terms of education, in terms of making um, our prescribers more mindful to make sure that the number of pills they prescribe are absolutely necessary and not providing um, any more. But I think one of the other areas that's important to screen is to also to better understand patients' expectations mm. for how much of their pain can be managed. In some situations, we're able to completely alleviate pain. But in other situations, people will live with some persisting pain. Um, so understanding a person's expectations is important. I think we also need to screen for psychological well-being. Uh, because psychological well-being is actually a better predictor of complications with opioids and pain problems 
than the medical or pain diagnosis itself. Um, so that's another thing that we need to screen and, and, and really try to partner with our patients to work uh, towards both uh, uh, physical wellness but also um, psychological wellness because um, it really makes for a, a better outcome and we find that patients can live a better quality life in the short term or long term if they have pain, if we do screen for those kinds of issues. How, do, how does one screen, I mean, speaking as a physician now, how do I screen a patient um, to, to know a little bit more if this person may or may not be one of those at risk for abusing opioids or for potentially getting themselves into problems with opioid addiction? Well, two simple questions would be, um, if you ask a patient to rate their pain on a 0 to 10 scale of severity, after they've given you that uh, severity rating, then ask them in that same scale, rate how much you can tolerate that pain, with 10 being the highest level of tolerance. Hmm. And for the patients who are giving you a high rating of tolerance, find out how they're accomplishing that. For the patients that are not, then you're going to get into the, their private experience of suffering and understand a little bit about where they are struggling, and that offers an opportunity for some of the risk factors. Um, so I, I think that's critically important. Very good. So now that we understand a little bit more about the scope of the pain management problem and, and, and some of the new legislative changes that have come into uh, the, the scope in the last year, let's talk about strategies. One of your major focuses is on showing patients the value of developing resilience and coping skills. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Okay. And one of the big things that they we're focusing on currently is both medical management of pain as well as what we call non-pharmacological management. And non-pharmacological is a big umbrella, and it really uh, focuses on helping people use strategies to improve either their emotional or their, or their physical wellness. So, and so, for example, some of the emotional uh, wellness strategies that we work on are things like learning to um, um, engage in activities that improve your mood, learning to monitor um, negative thinking, learning to better manage um, stress, um, learning to make sure you have enough social support, um, doing things helpful for other people, making sure that you have a sense of meaning and purpose in your daily life learning not to be so afraid of, of physical activities, uh, learning, especially if you have chronic pain, that even though something might hurt, it's not necessarily harming you. And this is very important because we know that um, stress um, can increase inflammation mm -hmm. of, the, of the pain sensory system. And so really working on emotional focused strategies are very important, but also uh, another area of non-pharmacological care is really what we call more functional or behavioral uh, um, coping, which would mean, for, for example, working with a physical or occupational therapist. It might be doing yoga or tai chi, uh, receiving massage. It could be um, um, participating in an acupuncture treatment. And all of these uh, things are really focused upon learning to um, reclaim your body and some body wellness, and that might include vitality, flexibility, strength, um, and, and those are very important uh, in terms of helping people frame um, their ability to live with pain um, in terms of strengthening their, really, their kind of body confidence. What I'm hearing then is that this really needs to be a holistic approach, right? So, so if, I'm a, if I'm a patient who, um, who has chronic pain, 
like the example of the woman that I gave in the in the beginning, you know, the answer to her to her issues may have been in part the physical therapy that her physician prescribed her would have been appropriate. The anti-inflammatory medications would have been appropriate. Even the opioids may have been completely appropriate, but you need to go that extra step and focus really on on the mind and and making sure that you're really sort of approaching this from a behavioral perspective. You mentioned stress. You mentioned managing stress. I recently did a, a, a podcast and had a conversation with um, Dr. Ruth Lerman. We talked about mindfulness and how mindfulness is one way that, that you can combat stress, and it's been very useful for controlling patients with chronic pain. So... Um, what I'm hearing is that's an opportunity. Also, other non-pharmacological things, you mentioned acupuncture. So really, the prescription for chronic pain um, is more than just the pain medications. There has to also be a prescription for some of these behavioral aspects. As a physician, as a prescriber, how do I get access to those things? What do I say to my patient? Well, it's a, it is a challenge because we historically have a gap in non-pharmacological resources mm -hmm. and non-pharmacological providers for pain management in our health system here at Beaumont Health and other health systems. Um, but, so, but I think the first thing is if you have a motivated patient, um, to educate them about the importance of emotional wellness and fit and body confidence and activity uh, to make your treatment more important. And if they're a motivated patient, usually you can kind of direct them to community resources. Mm -hmm. uh, we have, for example, an integrative medicine program here at Beaumont Health. We have uh, pain psychologists um, where they can take um, you know, advantage of those opportunities. But some patients are, are more passive. They're not as motivated. Um, they feel demoralized. Uh, they feel uh, kind of what we call like battle fatigue from dealing with the pain. Sure. And they kind of over-rely on their physician to provide them with a cure or relief. And oftentimes it's, it, it's very difficult for them to think uh, about a strategy for their own um, self-management. So I think kind of guiding those people, and sometimes it may take several visits to try to guide them towards a greater acceptance that pain management really is a partnership hmm. between the patient and, and the physician or prescriber, and they both have a part in making that a successful outcome. It's a real challenge. You know, again, I, I, I'm going to put on my internal medicine hat for just a moment and, and think back to the days when I when I was working in an internal medicine clinic and you would have 15 minutes or 20 minutes to see a patient who has, you know, hypertension and, 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 uh, and, and high cholesterol and, and diabetes, and you're managing all these things in real time. And oh, by the way, I also have chronic pain. And, and doing some of these behavioral focused interventions, while I recognize the value in that, it's hard. It's hard and it's time consuming to, to sit and to really have this conversation. But what I'm hearing is we have to do a better job at this. Are we getting better at this since some of these law changes and since we've recognized the opioid epidemic more? Are we getting better at this? I think we're getting better at the level of our physicians and, and, their, and their workforce are becoming much more aware and mindful of the mind-body connection and much more aware that pharmacological, surgical treatments um, are insufficient. Uh, so they're becoming much more aware of that. Um, but I think part of the problem is the difficulty in, in access to the uh, complementary or non-pharmacological strategies. For some patients, they're too expensive. Mm -hmm. 
and a lot of this is probably not covered by uh, you know a, a healthcare plan. Some is, some is not. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, one of the big things that we are working towards, not only at Beaumont Health but other systems, is to integrate. Um, behavioral health providers and other providers of non-pharmacological care Mm. into the ambulatory offices. Because especially for the patient who's worn out, demoralized, if they have to go to four different offices to get four different components of a holistic treatment plan, they're going to be less successful than if they can get everything in one place that's well-coordinated. And so I think that's one of our big challenges, is that the more complex the case the more the research has shown, it has to occur in one place, hmm. the treatment. Let's talk uh, a little bit more about some of the opioid sparing opportunities out there. So I had a conversation with a sports medicine doc um, who does shoulder surgery, and he was telling me that there's new techniques out there that use um, more long-acting regional blocks for, for like a shoulder surgery, for example, where you'd be injected with a a numbing medication, and in that critical period of time, one or two days post-op, you're not reaching for that bottle of pills for pain management because the block is really doing the lion's share of the work. Talk about things like that, and, and are we doing a better job of, of picking up on some of these more opioid-sparing um, things that are out there to help us curb the opioid use? Yes, especially in our, in our hospitals and our surgical centers, we're looking at a wide variety of, as you were saying, um, you know, anesthesia blocks mm-hmm. or non-opioid um, medications that can provide some comfort um, and pain relief to the patient without um, exposing them to opioids. In some situations, opioids are absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we know is that a small percentage of the population, when exposed to opioids for the first time, that may be sufficient for them to develop a problem. Now, that's a minority of the patients. The majority of patients exposed to the opioids for the first time are not going to develop a problem. But, um, again, we still need to really be screening, and the more that we can reduce exposure, the better. But one of the things we also need to do is begin to better screen patients before surgery to see who might be at risk so that we can catch it earlier on uh, and that is that is very important, too. And with that, the screening that you talk about earlier, you mentioned earlier, the two simple questions, is that the kind of screening are we talking about, or, or are we talking about something that's a little bit more robust, particularly for the surgical patient? Right. Well, we would screen for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, has the patient had a prior surgery that was complicated and they're now having some a- apprehension? Uh, an anticipatory worry about this new surgery? Is there any history of untreated depression, especially recently? Um, also, has the patient had any trauma? So, for example, patients who maybe have, who have an active PTSD condition, um, those kinds of conditions may be an issue. Also, is there a history of substance use disorders mm-hmm. um, that has gone untreated? These are all potential risk factors, and if we can identify these things early, we can do what we call pre-optimization, meaning that we can work with that patient to try to get them psychologically and medically ready prior to the surgery, which I think is probably as as important as sparing opioids. Hmm. I'm a big fan of this this idea of pre-optimization. I think this is something that's really catching on. The idea being that you're prehabilitating a patient before they have their surgery, putting a little bit of expectation in the hands of the patient and saying, you're going to have major surgery. You need to make sure you're ready for this major surgery. Physically, you're seeing a lot more hospitals that are 
latching onto programs like ERAS or early recovery from anesthesia after surgery, where um, where they're really saying, look, you're you know you're going to have some pain, you're going to have some discomfort from this surgery, but we're going to do everything we can to make you physically and emotionally ready before you go under the knife. And I think that that's a great thing. Let's talk. I want to dip my my feet a little bit into some slightly controversial waters. I don't think you can really talk about the opioid crisis without talking about something that is very popular right now in in, uh, the lexicon of of pop culture, and that is medical marijuana. So does medical marijuana have a role in managing pain in the face of the opioid epidemic? Well, there has been, um, in the research area, some preliminary support uh, for the use of uh, medical marijuana in certain situations as it relates to pain. But one of the biggest uh, problems is the restriction on good clinical research hmm. uh, because it's still a Schedule One drug. Um, cannabis or marijuana is a Schedule One drug controlled and monitored by the DEA, and it is a federal law that has completely restricted the availability of research funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the current director of the Health and Human Services uh, really does not envision medical marijuana as a um, ever as an FDA-approved um, treatment option. Hmm. Uh, and because of the restrictions, uh, we're not really able to approach it. And what it does do is leave a lot of uh, f- uh, physicians and prescribers of opioid medication at a disadvantage. Uh, for example, in our pain clinics, patients, um, if they uh, have medical marijuana, it's really an either-or. They can have medical marijuana or they can stop that, wean off of it, and then we will uh, trial them on opioids, but they cannot do both. Hmm. So there's really not an opportunity to research uh, whether um, a medical marijuana with pain management might reduce the need for opioids. We might be able to reduce some of the opioid-related risks. So that is a, a real disadvantage. Yeah, it is. So we've painted ourselves into a corner. We, On the one hand, we need more federal support for research, but we're never going to get federal support for research if it's a federally illegal controlled substance, right? Right. And even and currently in November, um, legalizing uh, marijuana will be on our um, on the ballot here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. But even if it becomes legal here, it'll be the same dilemma for the other 29 states that mm-hmm. as long as it's a federal crime and if the current attorney general um, wants to prosecute uh, medical marijuana, um, it's still going to create a lot of anxiety. And um, so therefore, we're not going to develop the kind of nuanced treatment plans uh, for pain management that might include a little bit of opioids and a little bit of marijuana. I am seeing some research start to kind of trickle through, uh, and I guess that's not federally supported research, obviously, but what I'm getting the sense is that there are some institutions out there that are looking at this more seriously. Are these are these foreign institutions, European institutions, or just smaller institutions that are sort of self-funding? Well, I think there, I think there are grants um, for research, but okay. it's very limited. It's, it's a very limited amount. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, for example, um, in the Journal of Pain, which is the Journal for the American Pain Society, there's been several re- uh, meta-analytic reviews, re- reviews of a wide range of, of research in the cannabis medical marijuana area recently. So there is some, there are, is research out there, but it's very, it's very limited. So as, as a listener, I, I may be, um, I may be a patient, I may be a family member, I may be a friend, or I may have a friend um, who I am concerned about, uh, who who may be using opioids or who may be using other controlled substances. 
how do I recognize that as someone who might be listening right now? What are some things that would tip me off that this person needs to get help? And what are some resources that that person can get attached to? Well, I'll give you some. So we would want to look at some of the risk factors that you'd want to look for. One is the individual using opioids, they're not prescribed. So are these opioids they're getting from somebody else? Mm. Um, Second, if they are prescribed opioids, um, are they using more per day than they're prescribed? Let's say they're prescribed to use two or three a day. They notice they're using four a day or they're using five a day. That could be a problem. Um, While they're using opioids, are they drinking a lot of alcohol? Um, Are they taking sleep medication at night and complaining of not sleeping, or are they sometimes taking an an extra opioid at night along with their sleep medication to really help them sleep that night? Mm. Are they um, talking about being anxious and distressed and they can't relax, and as a result of that, they're taking medication like Xanax or Klonopin or Ativan, those types of anxiety medications, or Valium or something like that? Are they starting to take that a lot during the day Um, plus their opioids. Um, That could be a problem. Another thing would be, um, are they running out of their opioid medication two, three, four days a week, two weeks before their next doctor's visits? Mm -hmm. These are always an indication that the person has probably got tangled up in the use of these opioids. What might I do if, if I recognize this? If I'm seeing a friend who's going through this right now, where do I go? What do I do? Um, I think the first thing to do is to try to um, be honest with what you're noticing mm-hmm. uh, without passing judgment uh, of, of your loved one uh, or, or, or friend. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing to do, sure. to kind of share that. Sometimes um, if, if you and somebody else is aware of it, having um, both of you share that uh, can make it more real for that individual. Um, there is also... Um, a community uh, program called Families Against Narcotics, or FAN, uh, and they are in many of the communities in Michigan. And um, you could reach out to them, and they can provide some guidance. They sometimes have uh, what they call angels, um, who um, people who either have been in recovery or have been affected by others with opioid use problems uh, may be able to provide some assistance. So that would be um, another resource uh, to think of. There are some police departments that are affiliated with a program called Hope Not Handcuffs. And if you, if an uh, individual in the community believes that they have a uh, substance use uh, problem, Mm -hmm. for example, an opioid use uh, problem, you can go to that police department. And what they will do is they will call Families Against Narcotics and they will uh, come there and they will help link you to a community treatment agency and there will be no problem with the police whatsoever. So that is, wow. a, that is another um, opportunity. And usually if you reach out to Families Against Narcotics, um, um, if they can't help you and you have a problem, you can, they can let you know which police departments um, have that type of program as well. Those are some great resources. Well, Bruce, this is a really good conversation, and I really appreciate your time. I think that's about all the information uh, that we have time for today. I want to thank Dr. Bruce Hillenberg for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Do you want to pass along any resources for some interested folks out there? Uh, Where can we find more information about you and your program at Beaumont or pain management in general? So at our uh, pain webpage, which is www.beaumont.org forward slash pain, you can find a wide range 
of uh, guidelines, especially non-pharmacological lifestyle management strategies and coping approaches uh, for dealing with both acute as well as a chronic persisting pain problem. Thank you for that, Bruce. And before we leave, I want to remind you to share any questions you might have with us at uh, our, our web, our, excuse me, our email address, which is podcast at beaumont.org. One of these days, Dr. Shah Jahan and I will answer our mailbag. And with that, I leave you with this healthy thought for the day. Managing acute and chronic pain is complex, and achieving relief demands a comprehensive, holistic approach. Pain medications may provide some value, but there is a mountain of evidence suggesting that pain medication, particularly opiates, simply aren't the solution to this complex problem. Understanding the physical, psychological, and emotional components of chronic pain will lead us to new techniques and strategies for pain management beyond the medicine cabinet. It requires resilience on the part of the patient, but the dividends are worth the commitment. Being able to free oneself from the vicious cycle of pain, disability, and depression is the true payoff. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org slash podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.